Hey, this is Rob and that's Micaiah and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, we are taking a ride on the jazz side as we slide into Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Micaiah, what was your introduction to Kind of Blue? into jazz music as a whole didn't grow up around jazz music uh at all um so it it took me a long time to approach jazz and it was really just kind of on my own and it was just going through things like the rolling stone list for a lot of music people i think we get into rut like oh like what new music should i be listening to i feel like i haven't heard anything new in a long time and i just kind of got to a point it's like you know kind of go back to the canons of great music and kind of blue bitches brew like it's like okay well you know let's dabble and the 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 jazz album that grabbed me the most when i started doing that was a love supreme by coltrane and that and i still hold it that's my my favorite jazz album and then after that it was uh bitches brew by miles and i think love supreme helps me get into it because it actually has vocals uh in that in the opening track so maybe that was kind of a help i mean it's not there's no verse or chorus it's just, it's just kind of like a refrain that happens um so i don't want to mislead any of our our listeners but and then a bit bitch's brew was um miles davis through the filter of sly and the family stone and Jimi hendrix and so that you know, really helped me out. That was something I could kind of latch on to. And I really got into jazz more when I started collecting jazz records. And it just so happens I found an original copy of Kind of Blue from 1959. And you know it's real because they spelled Cannibal Adderley's name wrong and everything. And it has the six eyes on the Columbia label. So it's the real deal. And you know because it doesn't sound great. Uh, well, it, it's playable. But, I mean, it, it's pretty crunchy. Uh, for all of you people who collect records and have anything from the 50s, uh, it can be pretty crunchy. But, but man, it, it's... And again, I, I've streamed this album. I've listened to it in headphones and different speakers to get ready. And I put it on the turntable again today before this. And man, Kind of Blue like really got me moving and got me thinking. And as the youth say, in my feelings, like it, it really did something new for me that I hadn't done before. And putting together a list of my favorite Miles Davis albums, I was prepared to put Bitches Brew at number one. But then listening to today, it, it really grabbed me in a way that it hadn't before and so yeah that's that's kind of how i came to kind of blue and where i am with it now so rob you have a more heartbreaking story if i recall correctly about how you kind of got into miles or jazz in general so this would probably be an unfair way of saying I got into jazz in general. So I, I grew up not, not heavily around jazz, but um, there were two albums in particular that were in heavy rotation 
in the house that I grew up in. And one was uh, uh, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder, which um, especially, I mean, Sir Duke, the Duke Ellington influence on that song alone, as well as some, some jazz influence on the album in general is certainly there. And through Songs in the Key of Life, as I got into middle school and high school, that became an access point to some other jazz. And then the album that literally played every single day in my household growing up, um, we did had the tradition of doing dishes by hand as a family um, before you know we got a dishwasher. And so we listened to George Benson's live album Weekend in LA every single night as a family as we would do dishes. And uh, George Benson is a jazz guitar player, um, but of course, over his career, he has worked with a lot of people that are part of that kind of later, um, you know, 70s, 80s uh, period of, of, of jazz music. Um, and so that was really my entry point to jazz music as a whole. My intro to Miles Davis was a CD compilation that came out in the early 90s of Miles Davis's what were considered love songs. So basically, uh, sweet, tender Miles Davis songs or, you know, covers that he did of jazz standards. So Miles Davis doing Someone to Watch Over Me, Miles Davis doing uh, some of the old, uh, you know, some, some of the versions that are on Porgy and Bess. It's basically the kind of Miles doing love song jazz standards. And I bought this CD because there was a girl in, in my sophomore year of high school that I had a crush on. And so for Valentine's Day, I made my mom drive to uh, Publix, which was a grocery chain that we had in, in Florida. And uh, we, we picked up flowers in the morning and I was gonna do that thing that I thought was so romantic in my mind, which is I'm gonna bring flowers. And I bought this CD, the Miles Davis Love Songs, and so I bought the CD and the flowers. How much were I, CDs at this point also? Oh, like eight, nine dollars. Okay. Okay. Like there, there were more expensive CDs, but you could, you could always find jazz CDs relatively cheaper. Okay. Um, you know, it wasn't a huge, huge market. It was for, like a $20. No, 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 no. Yeah. no. So, okay. but look, you know, so I'll never forget uh, bringing this girl um this a copy of this cd and the flowers and she immediately and i think probably just embarrassed by the idea of someone you know so publicly bringing gifts in the middle of a class was kind of like oh no thank you (laughs) (laughs) and so uh i threw the flowers in the trash and kept the cd and uh listened listened to it in in the way in the overly dramatic way that a a 15 or 16 year old would um, during that period of life. And where are you at with the kind of blue now? Is this something you listen to regularly or? So admittedly, I, I like this album a whole lot. And I think this is the best jazz album of all time. This is the greatest selling jazz album of all time. It's generally regarded as the greatest jazz album of all time and the most kind of quintessential yeah. jazz album of all time. And, on and every I, list, yeah, uh, not, I mean, not just ours, but on the Rolling Stone list, no, any iteration of it, it's the highest ranking jazz album, often in 
the top 25, top 50, Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not they don't have the top 50s list or jazz list, but yeah. So any any like jazz website or whatever. I mean, this is kind of the just the unmovable number one. Absolutely, and I and I wholeheartedly agree with that. I I will say, admittedly, that um, I don't listen to this album as an album start to finish much anymore. Hmm. Um, I I so I have a jazz playlist on Spotify. Um, and on that playlist, I have So What, Blue and Green, and All Blues. Um, I, I, I love Freddie Freeloader and Flamenco Sketches. But those three in particular, I think about how So What starts. And more and more as I listen to So What over the years, I really, I mean, look, it's John Coltrane playing, it's Bill Evans playing, it's Miles Davis playing. Paul Chambers bass, the bass line on So What is what really holds that song together for me. baseline that ties everything together is the is kind of the unmistakable hidden gem of of that song for me and then blue and green the the way in which john coltrane and miles davis play off of each other set against um these very kind of jazz uh you know diminished chords that Bill Evans is playing. Um, th- there's just something so, um, it's, it's so beautiful and, and delicate and present. And it's, it's something incredible uh, about. So all that to say, I love this album. This is, this is um, my favorite jazz album. It is my favorite Miles Davis album. Admittedly, I don't listen to it start to finish um, as often in the last five years as I did in the last week preparing for this recording. So Micaiah and I are both fans of this album, but we also recognize that we probably need to give you, the listener, an introduction to jazz as a whole, and neither one of us are equipped or prepared to do that. And so we have invited a doctor of musicology to join us today on the podcast. So when we get back from our break, you're going to hear from Dr. Tammy Pernodal from Miami University of Ohio. And she's going to tell us a little bit about the history of jazz, about Miles Davis, and a little bit about Miles Davis's role and what else she teaches at Miami University, critical race theory, and some of what we see today that is still similar to what Miles Davis was experiencing in his day. So join us when we get back. Hey, this is Rob, and I'm so excited to bring you this episode's independent record store of the week, Love Garden Sounds. 
in Lawrence, Kansas. Love Garden is a full-service record store buying, selling, and trading CDs, LPs, and more every single day. They have an incredible website with a direct link to all their Discogs inventory, lovegardensounds.com. They are located at 822 Massachusetts Street in Lawrence, Kansas, 66044. You can reach them at phone at 785-843-1551. Their store is open seven days a week from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. This would be a great place to go and pick up this week's album, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. And there I teach primarily uh, in the area of musicology, although I'm affiliate faculty of American Studies and Critical Race Studies and Women and Gender Studies. Um, So my classes stretch across the whole gamut of African American music. So I teach both popular and classical music, but I'm also a trained pianist. um, And um, I, but my research uh, primarily focuses on the contributions of women to various forms of music. Rob and I, neither of us are are jazz experts. Okay. Um, We, we know kind of blue. We love kind of blue. Love and we album. love, you know, Miles Davis and, and some of the other people involved uh, in that record. So we we are really counting on you to help not just our listeners, but us in a number of ways to to really appreciate Miles Davis, this record, and um, no pressure, jazz music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So can you give us kind of a a brief i mean this is a this is a separate episode in a in a class all into itself but could you give us just kind of a brief history of jazz in america so when i think about jazz's history you know first of all jazz is so tied to our sense and consciousness of what america is and america's culture you know which is why you know throughout the course of its history particularly in the 20th century the use of the word jazz has been fiercely debated by the musicians who, you know, perform the music. Uh, And so they were constantly looking for ways to insert jazz into um, this this context of understanding uh, America uh, from a historical and a cultural standpoint in the same way that classical music is often used to frame European history. Western European history. So when I, if, if, if I was going to give a snapshot of jazz history, I would tell you that there are really, um, there, there are a couple of significant periods of activity. You know, first coming 1890s to, I would say, um, around about 1915. And then 1916 to uh, 1935, um, 1936 to 1943, and these are kind of estimates. And then, you know, um, 40, 44 to 59, uh, 60 through uh, 79, and then, you know, 85 to present. So how do I get those, those <laughs> dates? Well, 
eight, the first period, 1890s to 1915, really deals with the roots of jazz. Um, and so jazz was an amalgamation of many different musical forms that came together in the cultural diversity of New Orleans. So it's partially rooted in African rhythms and African culture, which was retained in its entirety in New Orleans by virtue of the way in which slavery was um, practiced in New Orleans. New Orleans was a Catholic city, old European city. And so uh, you had a unique racial hierarchy there where you had Africans, um, some of which were brought from the continent of Africa, some were brought through the nexus of Caribbean islands. Um, and so, you know, that resulted in mixed race people. Uh, and you also had a class of free blacks that were quite wealthy called Creoles of color. And then you had whites of, of multiple varieties, you know, um, Italian um, and Asians as well. So in that mix, you've got all of these musical cultures coming together so that you are hearing, you know, European opera in New Orleans long before it reaches New York and Boston. You've got these African drums and rhythms and songs. You've got them mixing with uh, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian folk music as well. And so jazz really came out of that nexus of people living together and them all being cross influenced by each other. Um, and so, you know, it's very hard to really pinpoint exactly where it begins, but we know that it comes out of that cultural uh, mixture. Um, the other thing that oftentimes is referenced in terms of jazz is the way in which race is contextualized uh, beginning in the 1890s and how Black codes began to strip away rights to some Blacks um, and ultimately to all Blacks, right? And so that Jim Crow is oftentimes looked at as one of the things, factors that brings about jazz. So jazz, you know, was this coming together of these musical cultures, but then it was also feeding something that we don't talk about much uh, in our general discussion. It was feeding what was becoming a leisure culture industry in America. In America, late 19th century America, uh, a, a symbol of your class status was how you engaged in your non-work hours, what activities. And so leisure culture becomes an industry as we move into the 19th century. And so we're talking about the emergence of amusement parks. We're talking about world fairs like the Chicago's World's Fair in 1893. That is very significant, you know, mediating and spreading some of this music. We're also talking about zoos and botanical parks and things like this. So why am I saying all this? Because all of these things involved music, right? And so you have this, you've got Jim Crow happening, which precipitates migration. Uh, you, you know, you've got this leisure culture that's developing, not only in the South, but also in the North, right? And so you've got people migrating by virtue of that, because if I know that I can make money, you know, playing my guitar, my banjo, or my string band goes, can go to Memphis and we can leave, you know, this part of Mississippi and, and escape sharecropping, that's what I'm going to do, right? And so you got this leisure culture and this musical life that's really developing in, in the South, right? And it's spreading through the, you know, throughout the Midwest and the North as people are moving. So that by 1912, we have the word jazz first appearing 
and it first appears as a reference to baseball and a race and a reference to a way in which someone is pitching right but the fact that um that jazz music was something very different from what most northerners had heard before and most people think because it was the rhythmic aspects of it that made you know it so unique that um that people in the north this is not a southern term people in the north began to call this unique form of music jazz right um and so you hear a lot of references people talk about it's a reference to jasmine perfume you know worn in storyville or whatever so essentially by 1912 you've got this music occupying a space in the south occupying a space specifically in new orleans you know as part of the leisure culture industry that is built around storyville but you also have this music showing up in san francisco and um and uh, chicago in kansas city throughout you know as the midwest as people are traveling and so uh as we enter into world war one and and we have the great migration and you've thousands of people moving what we also have at this time is the emergence of new technology right so the new technology is the record and so as people are migrating this music is gaining traction gaining traction you know, outside of the typical black communal spaces, you know, you've got whites, because by virtue of where people are migrating, that's going to determine how you engage with this music, right? We also have this recording technology. No one was really interested in, you know, recording black music. And, and, and then, you know, as the music started to gain uh, popularity in these northern spaces, you know, then you had record companies that were like, okay, we want to record black music. But some of the early black progenitors of this music refused to record because they thought that people would steal their music. So as a result of that, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, which was a group of white musicians who came out of New Orleans, who were a part of the authentic part of jazz history, because jazz wasn't just music of one people in New Orleans. It was part of the ritual, ritualistic aspects of, of, of many different, you know, cultural and ethnic groups in New Orleans, you know, you get the first record. So 1917, we get the first record. We're entering World War One. And so the World War One years and and into the the 20s and the roaring 20s are going to be shaped by this culture of jazz, right? And so, you know, so jazz continues to evolve. And so I don't want to go into too much more, but what I wanted to tell you is this, as people move, they're influenced by the environments that they are in. So that by the time we get to 1935, which is when most people are hearing jazz in a real concentrated way because of radio, the proliferation of records, um, but, but also because, you know, uh, you know, jazz is becoming part of another wave of leisure culture because we're going to dance ourselves through the Great Depression and into World War II, you know, you have different subcategories or subgenres of jazz that appear. So that if you're in New York, the sound is going to be a specific thing. It's going to be rooted around these dance orchestras. But if you're in Chicago, 
the sound's going to be rooted around these smaller bands that have five to seven people in it, right? A lot of improvisation where New York is very structured. Improvisation is lessened, right? These you know, musicians have to work off of arrangements, right? So it's very much a part of the New York nightlife. But if you go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, or you go to Kansas City, Missouri, you're going to hear bands, you're going to hear uh, these same kind of dance orchestras, but they're going to play an improvised kind of blues sound that, you know, so they're swinging the blues. So you've got jazz kind of manifesting, you know, what is the cultural life of the spaces that they're in. And at the same time, being mass commodified through radio and, and records. And so that brings us to Miles Davis, who wow. is in East St. Louis, Illinois, who is hearing this music. And at the same time that he's hearing this music and engaging with this music, you know, as it's a major portal into the Midwest or going into Chicago based on what direction you're in, you know, he is kind of finding his voice. And he's finding his voice within a context that is antithetical to the expectations of his household, you know, because Miles Davis's father, you know, was part of a wealthy uh, Black upper class, you know, who had, who represented the ideology of the race man, you know, whose achievement personified excellence and Black exceptionalism, right? And so his wife, his children had to mirror that, right? And so here we have a young Miles Davis who is finding his identity not in the things that his father values, but in art, right, and in music. And so he's taking, you know, he's, he's in, he, he is taking musical lessons, he's engaged in this musical culture, uh, in his community, and trying to develop his sound. Now, what's interesting is that by virtue of the people he has proximity to, Miles's sound is very unique, it's very different, you know, because he's, He's playing with a straight tone, virtually no vibrato, you know, uh, kind of concentrating in the warmer ranges of his instrument, right? And, and really, in some ways, modeling what would be, have been seen as a more classical approach to the instrument. Now, that didn't mean he didn't have soul or essence, you know, but he's kind of modeling a different sound. And I've heard you, I, I often tell my students when I teach my jazz history class that we, if we want to point back to where we can kind of, you know, see the roots of, of Miles' sound, we have to look at a young white cornetist that comes out of Davenport, Iowa uh, in the 20s by the name of Big Spiderbeck. And Big Spiderbeck ends up in Chicago and it's him and Louis Armstrong that kind of framed this genealogy of horn players in the 1920s and, and, and setting up, you know, what's going to be this modern age of jazz as we move into the years following World War II. So you've got Miles who's kind of creating this unique sound that is a reflection of this environment that he's coming out of, right? Uh, and, and he makes this, this um, and he's coming to, really coming to a, a sense of purpose in his music, right as the music is growing in popularity, not just domestically, but globally. Because swing really took jazz to another level. 
of consumership. But it was also, in many ways, starting a very problematic process uh, in which the way jazz is contextualized in our American social system, right? So, you know, in many ways, what Swing did was it made the music more accessible, right? But by virtue of that, it stripped it of its artistry, right? Mm. Because really, you you know, the, the written arrangement becomes the privileged object, right? And those written arrangements are so ordered that in many cases, depending on what band you were in, your, your skills as an improviser are being um, diminished, right? Because mm. you're not being challenged. And some of these bands played the same thing every night, the same way every night, you know. Uh, but what you also have is jazz being redefined as music of democracy, right? In the height of the war uh, and, and in this challenging of Nazism, right? And the spread of communism, right? And so part of that recrafting of that is part of this Americanizing that is happening to jazz. Because before that, it was the other. It was mm. the other music, right? Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. if you're white, like someone like Big Spiderbeck, right, who is one of the essential voices of the 20s, right? And he's also the white musician who proves that white musicians within the context of jazz are not just replicators, right? That they they can create their own sound and uh, they've got their own ideas, right? So he kind of breaks this stigma about what white musicians are within the music, right? Could you give us a, a song title? Because we want to we, we, uh, get a, like, a sound drop, if we can, of uh, Hicks Biderbeck. Okay. Uh, Singing the Blues. Cornetist is Big Spiderback because it's very laid back and it's very, he's very much in the, you know, I mean, it's not that he can't play in the higher ranges. Sometimes mm-hmm. he goes there, but he doesn't. And the thing I like that also, you know, he shares with Miles Davis is the use of silence. Like when you listen to Miles Davis's sound, one of the things that made Miles quite different was the way in which Miles used silence. It was almost as a performative kind of compositional element. So what was more, you know, what wasn't being played was just as important as what was played. And his, you know, his sound was very warm. It was very inviting, right? That was the thing that was attractive about Miles. And so I'm not surprised for you to say that your entree to jazz was kind of blue because that's something that many people share. They hear that album, they or their entree to jazz is Miles Davis, right? Because Miles had a very accessible sound. Uh, he made jazz once again. Um, he made it so that people felt like they could follow it, you know. Mm. And while he improvised, his improvisations were such they were constructed in such a way, in a very song-like way that 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 it for people it made it seem much more melodic right and and that's one of the things that often you know pulls us to the music 
We feel like it's accessible. We feel like there's a melody that we can identify. Um, and, and we feel like there's, there's a, there is a connection that's made there, right? A vibrational connection there, right? And some people didn't feel that with bebop, which is where mm-hmm. Miles Davis enters into the scene. Uh, you know, in the 40s, he comes to New York under the guise of attending Juilliard um, and, and basically seeks out Charlie Parker. And he go, goes down to 52nd Street and begins to sit in and, and starts his process of, of a type of apprenticeship that was a part of jazz. You know, you, you learn from playing with those who came before you, you know. And, and so, but also recognizing that, that his sound was very different from a Gillespie or a Roy Eldridge or, you know, some of the people who were really kind of shaping what was a bebop trumpet aesthetic. For, for our listeners, and, and then really just for my sake, if, if there was a Cliff's Notes way of kind of describing for us the difference between bebop, what we think of as, as, as that bebop, bebop flavor of jazz, compared to what Miles Davis would really be a part of... Um, moving towards what we, and especially with kind of blue and the influence of Bill Evans in a more modal form of jazz for, for our listeners, how, how would you really define the differences between those? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things because you mentioned modal and modal is a reference to the harmonic structure of a piece and how musicians are thinking and conceptualizing their solos. Right. And prior to Kind of Blue, um, most of your musicians were operating out of what we'll call chord changes, right? And so songs are, are, are built in, in three ways. They're built by a melody. Uh, and then the second part of that is the harmony. So those are the chords that support the melodic line, the melody, and bring the color. They bring the depth. You know, they bring the music a different level of dimension. The third thing is the rhythm and how those harmonies and, and, and the melodic line operate in a rhythmic, tangible way. So what Bebop did was deconstructed all of that. It exploded that. And so what Beboppers did was that they took what was a, a very sanitized framework for swing, because swing was very simple, right? Swing was, you know, really essentially some popular songs. So they were built and formatted in certain ways. What you understood after a while is even if you didn't know the song, if you could figure out the key, you would normally be able to figure out what the chord changes, the pattern, you know. So that has to do with relationships between notes and relationships between chords, right? And so you could fake your way through a song you know, by virtue of just having basic knowledge of how harmonies work and things like that, because outside of a few arrangers, like, you know, Duke Ellington, Mary Lou Williams, you know, most of your swing arrangements were very basic in their construction, which meant that they were easy to to be commodified Mm -hmm. or in some ways stolen. You know, because one of the things you hear about bebop is that the musicians wanted to take the music back to the essence of what jazz was. That's a reference to improvisation, 
centering the solo as being a central focal point of expression of your musicianship. But also what they wanted to do was to create music that couldn't easily be stolen or commodified. Mm. So in other words, you know, that you had to prove your level of musicianship, right? By really being a student of the music and not just a reader on the page. Now that doesn't mean that these artists weren't thinking that reading skill was not important. But what but understand during the swing age, if you had eight friends who had instruments, you too could have had a swing band because all you <laughs> needed to do was buy the stock arrangements, right? Mm-hmm. And you just go out and play, which is what a whole lot of people did, right? But what they wanted to do was to create a musical aesthetic that was just as intellectual as it was artistic mm-hmm. or expressive, right? So what they did was started deconstructing well-known tunes. So they de- deconstructed them in two ways. One way, they would discard the melody from a well-known tune and just have the chord changes, just the chord, the chord pattern, the harmonic pattern that made up that. And what they would do is create a new melody to go over top of that and give it a new name, right? Now, if you really knew theory of jazz, right? Then you could figure out like, oh, that's that's Coco or oh, that's Cherokee or that's I Got Rhythm or whatever, right? And so they would create these new melodies based on pre-existing chord changes. Then sometimes they would flip the opposite. So what they would do was add new harmonies and new chords, chord substitutions into jazz arrangements. Now again, what this required was for you to be able to think in real time and still improvise over top of them. So this was a way of measuring who really could hang and who couldn't. You know, like we're going to separate the men from the boys, the girls from the women, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can do this, right? And not only do it, we're going to change keys on you. We're going to modulate. Like we you know, we're going to just make it as complex because you got to understand these musicians were studying people like Stravinsky and, and Hindemith and Ravel and Debussy. So they weren't just a bunch of jazz musicians sitting around smoking pot, thinking about what we're going to play tonight. They were really studying the music. Mary Lou Williams used to take some of those musicians down to the New York Public Library and pull out scores and say, look, look at this chord here. Look at how they're using it, you know. So, you know, we're talking about people who, uh, it was a combination of raw talent, you know, but, and intellectual activity and Mm -hmm. artistry, right? Um, So by the time we get to kind of blue, though, that level of experimentation that was happening in bebop, which for many people was too hard because, Mm -hmm. you know, you move from having these very tuneful, you know, swing things to, you know, the drummer's not even playing the beat. You know, it was like in these little snatch phrases, many Mm -hmm. of them, right? Uh, Very short, you know, because the idea was that you just got that little bit of idea. That's not even what's important. What's important is these 16 bars of solo are about to play, right? It's just going to exude out of these 
these these chords. It's not even gonna come out of this melody. It's coming out of these chords. Like, and how many different ways can I think about that? For for our listeners, and especially if you're if you're interested in in Miles Davis, in Miles Davis, in the first ten years of his recording career, we actually get to hear him go through this transition, this bebop to this kind of next hybrid. And, and so a little bit what you're talking about, kind of taking a standard, taking a familiar song in that deconstruction. So really, if, if you're a listener and you're wanting to hear a little bit of what Dr. Canodal is talking about, I want to encourage you to pick up uh, Miles Davis' album, Porgy and Bess. And, and there's a, a perfect example of that. He's taking kind of that classic Gershwin idea and he's taking this band and they are, I mean, they're ripping this song apart. But I almost wonder, and I want to ask this question before we get into to kind of blue, you bring up this idea that these, these musicians, this wasn't just pot smoking improv- improvisation for as much as, you know, the, the world from the 1920s on seemed, seemed to really be labeling jazz music and, and really, I think, black musicians in general. But this was deeply intellectual uh, incredible musicianship, and these were people who were studying um, some of, some of the great classical masters in terms of music composition and music theory, mm-hmm. and they're doing all of this in a way that those that those masters were never doing because every night they're changing it, they're they're changing keys, they're changing arrangements, they're it's 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 a a constantly it's a constantly shifting collection of spinning plates that is all happening in real time while all of that's going on how is this not a music or how are these musicians not receiving more of their of their due in respect in in the greater culture was it was this just solely because of racism that that these artists were not being elevated to their appropriate place I think a great deal of that had to do with racism and and just how um, radical and transgressive the bebop sound was, right? The bebop sound was like this reclamation, like we're going to take the music back um, and, and, and we're not going to cater to what you think. So, so I, I want you to think about the radicalness of the sound and imagine that radicalness also being embodied in these musicians. Because we have to think about the timing of bebop. And bebop is happening right as the consciousness of Black America is also changing, mm-hmm. right? Because we've got World War II, and we've got an overwhelming presence of Black soldiers, right? You've got Black people being able at an all-time high to contribute to this fight of democracy, right? To prove that they are patriotic Americans, right? You know, this has been this has been the fight that African Americans have had since 1865 to the point of freedom, to prove that they mirror uh, the touchstones, the hallmarks of black of white America, white middle America. They're patriotic. 
they're moral, they're religious, they have integrity, you know, that, you know, they believe in the nuclear family, you know, they believe in the American dream. And over and over, over and over, right? Every time, you know, Black people show evidence of this, right? There is some violence that is enacted against them, right? Tulsa, 1921. The Red Summer, 1919, Rosewood, right? Um, so there was this consciousness that that the test of Black soldiers and the test of Black America during the height of World War II was going to be, you know, the point where we would see maybe America begin to change its attitudes. But it became very clear that that wasn't going to happen. So, you know, what was launched is what's called the Double V Campaign. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. The Double Victory, abroad and, uh, yeah, at home. So winning the war in Europe and then winning the war at home. Yes. And so this became one of the political ideologies of Black America during this period, right? Just as he said, we're going to win the war against fascism and Nazism in Europe, and we're going to win the war against Jim Crow and second-class citizenship in America. Well, that didn't happen, right? And so you have a realization that's happening. We've been playing this game, and this game has gotten us nowhere. So it's time to let that go. So what you start to see is this radical form of Black consciousness being exhibited, right? So then you have you have a Miles Davis, you have a Dizzy Gillespie who says, I refuse to joke with the crowd. I refuse to talk to the crowd. I'm going to come out and just play my music, right? And then if I feel like after the second, third song talking to you, I talk to you. If I don't, I don't, right? You know, and Miles took that a little further later on. You know, he just turned his back. <laughs> you know, he come out and just, just turn his back and just be with the musicians. Didn't even care if the audience was there, you know, and then if he felt like talking to you, he'd say a little bit, right? That was a kind of radical masculinity that never seen before. Because, you know, Duke Ellington's going to play up to the crowd with the, you know, with his with his humor and suave, you know. You've got uh, uh, Count Basie the same way, right? You know, and so that was a way of, of really kind of anesthetizing the fears of white America Mm -hmm. about black music crossing over and potentially, you know, contaminating them. Right. Right. And is is this part of what makes miles cool? I mean, there's the album birth of cool and the the documentary, which you're featured in uh, quite a bit, miles Davis birth of cool. Uh, You know, he, he's thought of just being just, just cool. Miles Davis mm-hmm. is cool. They are synonymous terms. Is that is that attitude? They're very much related. You know, it has to do with Miles's own personal consciousness, and and much of what we see with this, right? You so the birth of cool recordings are done between forty nine and fifty, right? But they're not called the birth of cool until nineteen fifty seven, right? So Miles was a significant part of the word cool becoming part of the lexicon of American language, right? That became part of the 50s aesthetic, right? And so that consciousness that people saw, whether it was the clothes or the swagger or, you know, the I don't give up 
whatever attitude that he had. Um, and, and also realizing that many people did not see him as beautiful, right? In the context of how blackness was showcased in entertainment. Because we got to keep in mind, you know, outside of the black and white film reels that we see, when we become colorized, right, what you see being projected on the screen in terms of blackness typically reflects the colorism of Hollywood, right? You know, and so, you know, Miles Davis being dark-skinned, many people would have told him that was a liability, you know. But what Miles did when he went to Europe was Miles experienced something totally different that was liberating, right? So when Miles came back, you know, you've got a Miles that is dressing a certain way, you know, uh, is, is coming into that same kind of radical consciousness that his father would have had, right? That his mother would have had, right? Alongside with the wealth and also with the ability to, to be an artist that could explore in many ways. So this is what I meant when I said what would have been a liability became an asset, right? Because what Miles did was that Miles did not chase what the world thought was artistry or beauty. Mm. He did the work inside, right? And he nurtured his art. He nurtured his consciousness. He nurtured his sense of being and the world caught up with him. So let's go ahead and, and think about Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue to this day, the greatest selling jazz album of all time, mm-hmm. still seen um, by most people as the kind of quintessential jazz record. We think about the artists who play with Miles Davis on this album, and they are, again, I mean, th- this is an all-star band, <laughs> if, if there ever was one. Mm-hmm. This is... Paul Chambers, who maybe maybe that generation's greatest upright bass player, um, John Coltrane is one of the sax- one of the two saxophonists on this album. Bill Evans playing the piano. I mean, the the artists who play with Miles Davis on this album, and this is even amongst Miles Davis's recordings, there is something different about Kind of Blue. That, that it seems strange that we hear it so clearly just across two days of recording. So for our listeners and for us, what can you tell us? What do we need to know about Kind of Blue? What are the things about this album that stand out to you and make this the quintessential jazz record? First of all, part of what you explain about the mystique of Kind of Blue is the collective of musicians that come together. You know, these are all uh, these are all young musicians who become, in their own right, leading voices that progress jazz into 1960. So this album in 1959, right, is a snapshot of the future is a snapshot of the future of jazz, right? And it's, so it is is essentially one of the dream team jazz bands, right? For the very reason that you said, right? Because Paul Chambers is one of the iconic uh, bass players of this period of hard bop moving into the modal jazz, right? Period. 
uh, Julian Cannonball Adderley uh, as an alto saxophonist, right? Really becomes, uh, you know, really shifts that, that alto saxophone sound beyond Charlie Parker, right? Uh, and goes on to do significant work in his own right. James Cobbs, you know, who passed away last year, right? Uh, you know, he and Paul Chambers together with Wynton Kelly, one of the strongest rhythm sections that we would see in this latter half of jazz history, right? And then Bill Evans, you know, who's all, you know, Wynton Kelly is only on one tune, Freddie the Freeloader, which speaks, you know, to his, um, uh, ability to decipher the blues, right? Which is what he he was good at. But Bill Evans bringing, you know, uh, the, those musical colors, right? And also uh, decentering this conversation about race in jazz, right? As as one of the only white players in this band, right? And then you've got Miles Overlaid. And when you listen to them, you know, you're listening to musicians who are not just playing, but they're consciously listening to each other. And right. And, and in many ways, this, this, this album is a soundtrack, part of the soundtrack of a civil rights movement. It's part of the soundtrack of, you know, a, a shifting of the context as we know it about America. Cause we think about what 1960 brings. 1960 brings Kennedy's presidency, the youth and vitality of that, right? And this sense of newness, right? It also brings amplified Black civil rights movement because we get the sit-ins, right? And so, it, and we and we get uh, the beginning of a space race, right? So we get the beginning, it's a whole new age, right? And the baby boomer generation is beginning to come of age, right? And so, you know, this this album is like almost a portal. It is linking uh, aspects of a sonic and a historical and a social past, and and also providing us what is 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 a preview of what is going to be this future. It's a future that's going to be fueled with the same level of fragmentation that we heard you know, only really a decade earlier, right? Where jazz moves into this level of experiment again, experimentation again. And this, this is, this is, from some people, it's a nostalgic moment because jazz is never the same after that, for better or for worse, however you look at it, right? Um, And it's a beautiful album.
And so, you know, for me, it's like he carries you on a spectrum of, of like moments of emotions, of experiences, right? That by the time you get to Flamingo Sketches, right? You know, you feel like you have been transported to another space, right? You've been transported through, you know, sound and energy and all of that. And, you know, to hear Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley, not competing, but in antiphony against each other, right? It's like that, man, this is like heaven. It's it's really like heaven, you know? Um, and it's, it's hard for me to pick a moment because that's the way I listen to this album, right? You know, like it's not, when I have to, I'll listen to individual pieces, but this is an album to this day that I still, put in the CD chamber and the thing that I usually put in behind it, believe it or not, is Cannonball Adderley's something else. Really? Yes. Wow. And then I might go to, you know, uh, a Joe sample or somebody else, but I set my CD disc player to have an experience, right? Because I want there to be this kind of seamlessness of consciousness and and, and this is what I, I use to not just relax, but it puts me in a space. It puts me in a different space and energy. When was the first time you listened to Kind of Blue? would say in college believe it or not in grad school like I went through this thing of really being into jazz I, it kind of started in undergrad because I can't tell you I really grew up listening to jazz my parents didn't really listen to jazz so by the time I got to the Ohio State University right I started talking to people who knew jazz so I started frequenting like the little little basement record stores and CDs were just coming to play. So, I mean, I will tell you, it's two albums that were my real, real deep dive into jazz was Kinda Blue and, and Soul Train, John Coltrane's album, Soul Train. Those <laughs> two albums got me and I was like, oh, I am there, you know? And so most of my stuff was focusing on this period like, you know, I focused first on the hard bop period, you know, and from there I went to Art Blakey and, you know, then I started tracing people. Like, I was like, well, who did Paul Chambers play with? You know, who did, who did Red Garland play with, right? You know, you know, and, and so I, that's how I made my trajectory. And I started taking jazz PM. And, and so, you know, so Miles was an entree, but Miles was accessible. I couldn't have started at Ornette Coleman. Mm -hmm. I don't even think I could have started at Louis Armstrong, right? Because Miles drew me in and I started just moving from there. You know, listening to Porgy and Bess, listening to Miles Smile, going back to Birth of Cool, you know, uh, and then just kind of making, you know, inroads by doing that listening. And, and, you know, much in the same way that some people trace 
you know, athletes, you know, especially baseball players, you know, they, 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 they can tell you about this team or whatever. I started doing that with bands and, you know, just trying to see who was in whose orbit and who was, who was recording with who. Miles Davis, I think, and and especially you mentioned this the the tone that he gets out of the trumpet, especially in kind of blue, it's it's more of a middle register within that instrument, and so sonically it seems to occupy so much of the space I was used to hearing a guitar player play, mm-hmm. and 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 especially you know someone who grew up listening to George Benson albums that that kind of mid register. And, and again, some of the, the arpeggiated lines that he plays in terms of, of the way he constructs his melodies when he's, when he's soloing. And so it, almost, it was almost like the guitar became my way into Miles Davis because of the way he plays a trumpet. I was used to those sounds from a different instrument in that register. What's mm-hmm. interesting to me on Kind of Blue and, and I really hadn't thought about it until we started preparing to record for this album. The rest of the, the rest of the instrumentalists in this band, they all kind of move their register to match Miles Davis on this album. So the whole album feels warm and kind of in this mid-register place mm-hmm. in a way that we don't often think of jazz during this period of time, especially if you listen to Cole Translator work, if you listen to a Love Supreme, he is a very different saxophone player on Kind of Blue than he is later on in his in his career. Well, yeah, wait till you get to Ascension. Absolutely. But I often think that's why it's called Kind of Blue, you know, because when you think of what blue is as a color and, and how some people talk about, you know, musical color, as not just a sound, but they, they visualize color as well, right? You know, in so many ways, this album personifies this. Because if you look at just the, the title of it, you would assume that this is all an all blues album, right? Mm. You know, just by virtue of that, you know, the use of the term blue and how it's traditionally been used, you know, in popular music. But, you know, it, it, it really is you know, it is representative of all of these different, you know, shades of how blue functions, you know, as a color, but also as the, how the blues functions within jazz to create either ethos or it's directly, you know, in, in like some of these pieces is the direct articulation of some musical things that connote, you know, what the blues is. And I think, you know, it, it is a, it's in many ways a metaphor for how we can see Miles Davis's music mm. and his constant sense of changing and his constant sense of experimentation. Mm. Like he wouldn't stay static. He wouldn't, he wouldn't just continue to be safe about things. Um, and, and, you know, making the music the central point, you know, not the commercial appeal, not if people were going to acclaim it. We know this. You know why we know this? Because look at all the stuff from the late 60s into the 70s where people just 
you know, couldn't get him. First time he is like highly criticized and just written off as, you know, a charlatan and what happened to Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. He didn't care. You know, he was like, this, this is what I hear. This is how I'm going to, you know, experiment. So as, as a, as a closing question, because we want to be mindful of your time. um, We want to thank you so much, first of all, for doing this and, and for being so gracious with your time. Um, Maybe some of our listeners can get like a credit hour or something for this. <laughs> um, if it, if you want to make this all jazz albums, then then that's totally okay. Are you but, really gonna ask me that question? <laughs> but, but, but we know this coming. But we generally want to. Uh, we generally like to close because um, the theme of the podcast is you forgot one. We talk about the what we believe are the greatest albums of all time. But inevitably, when you start talking about great albums, you realize all the ones you've forgotten. And so mm-hmm. as, as a way of inviting our guests to inform what we talk about, we want to ask you, what do you think are, are the greatest albums for you? What, what are your favorite, your greatest albums of all time? I would have to say Kind of Blue. Um, I would also say Mary Lou Williams's Black Christ of the Andes. Um, That's a great title. Um, Alice Coltrane's, um, a monastic trio, her first solo album after the death of John Coltrane. I would have to say Ella Fitzgerald's, the song books. Don't ask me to choose one. Just the whole, all of them, (laughs) just the song books. Every volume. Like everybody just should hear the song books, right? Where am I at? That's four. That's four. Oh, God. I would have to say anything by Clifford Brown and Max Roach. I know that's sacrilegious because I did not say John Coltrane. But if I could have a sixth one, it would be Soul Train by, by John Coltrane. There are no rules to this. Okay. Yeah. So we, we, can, we can get... And it, shifts, it shifts according to the mood and the time of day. Uh, but, right. But those... If if I wanted people to 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 go off the beaten path and to move beyond what most people say, those would be the albums. We want to thank Dr. Knodel from Miami University of Ohio for being with us on this really special and important episode of You Forgot One, talking about Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. For our listeners, I also want to let you know that the conversation that we had with Dr. Knodel continued. And in just a few moments, we're going to play you the rest of the interview. But before we do, I want to give you an update on when we recorded this episode. We recorded this episode on Monday night, April 12th. The evening that we found out that Dante Wright had been killed by police in Minnesota. With so much that's gone on in the last year and in the last decades and in the last hundred years, we wanted to give an opportunity to tie in to the reality of Miles Davis' life to the lives of so many that have been lost recently. Miles Davis, as a black musician, Here he was in 1959 and also the victim of police brutality. And so we asked Dr. Knodel about that. And so before we play that, we do want to go ahead and let you know 
that for Micaiah and I, we will be including Kind of Blue by Miles Davis among our first season 25 albums. We are in wholehearted agreement. This is one of the greatest jazz albums of all time and certainly worthy of its place on our list. Micaiah, before we get to the rest of our interview with Dr. Knodel, any closing thoughts about Kind of Blue? It isn't just a great jazz album. I mean, it's one of the great albums of all time. Okay, so, and that might help other people kind of unlock it. Don't think that you're just going to listen to a jazz album because that kind of puts a little distance between you and the record, right? This is just one of the great records of all time. And kind of going with that point of view, I think that's very helpful. And know that this record, this is probably going to be the oldest one on our list. But this this record, and we talked about this a little bit um, with, with, with Dr. Canodal, it says so much about the history of jazz. It's so much, it's a snapshot of what's happening in that moment, but it's also a snapshot of what's going to happen in the future. And what we kind of talk about for the rest of this interview is how present the album also is. I mean, there, there is a, just a, a profound, timeless quality to this record. Well, that being said, we want to thank you, our listeners, for listening to this episode and for taking this journey with us. We hope that you enjoy Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, and we hope that you take away a great deal from the rest of our interview with Dr. Knoll. If you don't mind, can I go back for a minute? Because you asked a question, and I like to put it into the podcast. I know I said I had to go. But you asked a question about Miles Davis and you said something about him being free in Europe and not here. And I want to speak to that because we oftentimes think that Miles Davis being attacked by a police officer in 1959, you know, was like him coming to a consciousness about his blackness. And, and what I think is this, although Miles never talked about that struggle that that black men in particular live with that shadow of always being criminalized always being seen in a certain way in the way that some of his peers and predecessors talked about it i think that was always something in the back of his mind mm. miles understood that no level of artistry or popularity or, or money was going to help help him escape mm. what was this stigmatization that he, you know, he had to face constantly about being a black man living in America. And so, for our listeners, can you flesh out? Um, a lot of them probably don't know that specific story you're talking about. Right after "Kind of Blue" comes out, yes. um, Miles Davis Miles, is playing at the Birdland, right? And he steps out in between sets to smoke a cigarette on the street, and a cop comes up to him and says, "You need to move." And Miles is like, "You know, I'm." I'm playing in Berlin, you know, um, and he's like, you know, my name's on the marquee, whatever. The cop's like, look, I told you to move. So Miles didn't say anything. He just stared the cop down, you know, Miles Davis kind of way. But another cop basically hit him, just cracked his skull open, right? And they arrested him, you know, for resisting arrest or whatever, you know. And so there's this iconic picture of Miles Davis in the, in the police department with blood blood all over this expensive suit, you know, it's, 
his head is lacerated, you know, and people always point to that, you know, as, as first, you know, where Miles Davis's kind of violence and, and anger kind of grows uh, or, or begins. I don't think so. I think that was, I think he was always angry. There's a certain level of anger, I think, that's embedded in people who are marginalized. What, what happens is, is that there are trigger events that oftentimes make it impossible to continue with the politics of respectability. Mm-hmm. And so that, that comes out in various ways. And how that came out of Miles Davis was in his music, right? And, and, and the, not just the level of experimentation, but the level of anger that people saw a swag on the stage, right? So when you talk about him turning his back or, you know, or him berating, you know, people sometimes, right? That was a part of that internalized anger that he felt uh, about that moment. But also you got to think his whole entire life mm-hmm. of what he had seen his whole entire life. And what he understood was that, you know, people would consume your music without any consciousness for who you are as a person. And that's what I try to impress upon my students and even, you know, going beyond just the students I engage with. It's not enough to love Black music if you don't have a consciousness about Black people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, or then you're just picking out, you're just picking apart somebody's essence and well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and without any regard. And so, you know, he understood. Because you got to understand, Miles Davis saw Bud Powell get beat. Miles Davis would have known about the Monius Monk losing his cabaret card. Or he would have known about Billie Holiday losing her cabaret card, constantly under surveillance by the U.S. government. He would have known about Hazel Scott being blackballed. He would have known about Duke Ellington. I have Duke Ellington's FBI file. Do you know what it is to live under constant scrutiny and somebody thinks that just simply because you, you elevate yourself or you speak about social justice that you are now subversive? Mm-hmm. You know, so that anger and that freedom that you say you hear in those works, that's because he was free.